Hello. I have an invitation to tea with the Queen. Yes, Emma's been expecting you. Please come in. I think that we just massively underestimate, especially as women, our own capability and awesomeness. And it, it's changed. It's changed my life completely. Yeah. Sometimes I think you go through this journey as a business owner and think you're a bit crazy. You're like, who am I to have this dream? Well, I just think women are hard on themselves. I wish I had been more confident in what I was capable of. But I feel like you do what feels right for you, then that's going to be always on brand. Women, our natural inclination is to be pleasers and to put other people before self. I've never had a tea with the Queen before and this is such a pleasure. (laughs) Hello, I'm Emma McQueen and welcome to Tea with the Queen. Do you remember when you were a teenager or have too many years gone by (laughs) or have too many things happened since those days? Were you ever weighed down by anxiety or stress from school or work or had issues with relationships, whether from your friends or family or someone you were attracted to? Your self-esteem was probably low and no doubt you were unsure of yourself and your place in the world. Well, Marie Vakakis has heard all that and more with the young people she helps get back on track. As a mental health social worker and family therapist, Marie helps teenagers and young adults who want to be happy, confident, and live a meaningful life. That's a tough task. Marie is also founder and owner of The Therapy Hub, a team of professional counsellors who provide a range of services for couples, families, and individuals, a successful growing business, as you'll hear shortly. I'd love this chat with Marie. If you have teenage kids, it might just make you stop and think a little about your own relationship with them. Hi, Marie. Thank you so much for joining us on Tea with the Queen. I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. Me too. It's always fun to be a guest on a podcast that you listen to so avidly. Yay. Tell us, I'm going to launch straight in, are people's mental health getting stretched more these days than ever before? It's really hard to say. We don't have current broad kind of population data. So the ABS did some research. Well, it's been over 10 years since we had a kind of population survey. But we can sort of anecdotally say that for some people, yes, especially with the last few years uh, with COVID and lockdown, people have been stretched. And also increased understanding has given people increased vocabulary to maybe actually put to words their experience that they didn't understand before. So some people are reporting things that maybe they've been sitting with for a long time. Uh, We know for things like anxiety, it can take people up to 15 years to seek help. Holy crap. Yeah, for an existing um, either mental illness or when they're struggling with things like anxiety. And then we have some people who are adapting and adopting, you know, going to therapy, doing some self-help stuff, who are maybe doing that early intervention work. So it's reducing perhaps the intensity or the frequency of them developing poor mental health or a mental illness. So it's it's really a mixed bag. It's really hard to say across a population. I feel like, though, even though it's hard to say and you've only got the anecdotal evidence, that attending to your mental health, reading self-help books, 
it's got less of a stigma now. Do you feel like that's true? I feel like that's true. When I'm talking to people, people are a bit more open about, yeah, I've had mental health challenges or I'm seeing a therapist or, you know, like I feel like it's got less stigma. But are you seeing that? In some ways, yes. And in some ways, there's a lot more misinformation. So we all have mental health. And I think people use mental health to mean mental illness. But just like we all have physical health, any moment, in any day, we all have mental health. And we sit somewhere along that continuum and that can fluctuate and that can fluctuate by day by day and it can fluctuate over large periods of time. So I think people will say something about mental health and mean mental illness, but they're very separate things. And so, yeah, and then there's an increased understanding of things like anxiety and depression. But where I see the misinformation is those are feelings and we are all supposed to feel anxious and stressed and lonely and sad. Like they are normal, healthy, functional feelings. When they become, when they consume you, when they impact day-to-day functioning, uh, maybe they don't go away as quickly as they should and they really, they're severe and pervasive, then it might actually be a mental illness. But there's still a lot in between. And that's where I think we're getting a little bit confused people will say oh I'm I have anxiety I can't do that when maybe they mean I'm anxious and that's scary and that's okay and so I think we we're still doing a bit more work to improve the emotional literacy and mental health understanding and not confuse the two and not think that good mental health is the absence of feeling stressed or sad or anxious or worried it is those things are really normal like if you've got a job interview you're really excited about You need some anxiety in order to be prepared. It helps you think. It gives you some clarity. You concentrate. Too much anxiety might mean that you are so overwhelmed you don't go. So we need some of these things, you know, sadness or loneliness. It it signals to our body or our, our mind something's not quite right here. You need company. You need connection. You need support. So that's where I'm seeing the bit of a bit of misinformation. Now we're trying to untangle that for people a little bit. Yeah, that makes so much sense to me. I think mental health has been bandied around so much that it makes it easy for people just to put their own label on it and own definitions of it as well. You're the owner of the Therapy Hub. Such a great name. Tell me how you started it and what do you do? Yeah, so I'll rewind right back to the start of my career. So I'm an accredited mental health social worker and family therapist. And I started off working in aged care. So I worked in a service that supported people with alcohol-related brain injuries, access housing, and then appropriate sort of mental health, alcohol and drug support, physical, like wraparound support for those people. And I, I loved it. It was one of the, still one of my best jobs. I was so fond of the team and the cause. And I realized I wanted to work with a slightly younger population to kind of that old analogy of, you know, I wanted to go further upstream to see why people are falling in the water. And so I went into adult services and I learned again so much. I worked in psychiatric services, in community services, and I still wanted to go even younger. So I started working with youth and then worked in schools for a little while as a school counsellor, wellbeing coordinator. And I loved it. I loved seeing young people flourish and thrive and celebrate wins as well as seeing them for counselling. So Working in a school is so much fun, going on school camps and um, seeing oh, all, that, all that fun stuff that now in my current role I don't get to see when people are well, they don't come back. And so over the years I had started doing things on the side, classic side hustle, 
or hobby or whatever you would call it. It probably was a hobby because it wasn't very profitable. But I was, you know, I had uh, a small caseload of private clients that I would see for therapy. I was running training for mostly for teachers and parents, so uh, youth mental health first aid on the weekends. And then I trained in another program called Tuning Into Teens. And then I worked for uh, RMIT University supporting their fieldwork education program. And then through lockdown, I just took the big risk to pull it all together into one job. So I started the therapy hub. So I run the mental health training for teachers and parents, the coaching tuning into teens for parents mostly. I can have students on placement. I can have a team that I support and train and educate. And then I do counseling as well. So it was just an opportunity, a really big, scary one to bring it all together under one roof and see if I can create what would be maybe a portfolio career, but under one roof, really. Makes sense. Totally makes sense. (laughs) And I have had the privilege of watching how hard you work, how freaking hard you work. And uh, it's amazing to watch it grow and to watch the foundations. And if you've got some people in the therapy hub now, it's just awesome. What kind of people do you focus on helping then? Well, as a team, our area of, I guess, overlap, our special interest is working with teens and adolescents. And then we have people who work with sort of outside of that. So some will work with slightly younger children, some will work with adults, myself and a couple others do couples counselling as well as family therapy. And we have a mixture of modalities. So we do have most practitioners trained in sort of your basic CBT Act. We also have people trained in EMDR therapy, which is really becoming well known for a leading sort of treatment for trauma, play therapy, art therapy. And so that allows us to be really adaptive and flexible so we can work with a number of clients and a number of presenting concerns or challenges and within the team find the right fit. So not every modality works for everybody and Uh, finding a therapist can be a bit like speed dating sometimes. So we try to match people with as best we can at the start and provide a number of different options. And for our audience who don't know the acronyms CBT or ACT or any of those, can you tell us what they are? Yeah, so they're all, it's sort of psychobabble stuff, but uh, CBT (laughs) is a really popular one. It's got a lot of research behind it, which is probably why it's well known. It's called cognitive behaviour therapy. And it's basically looking at, in really, really basic terms, that you're, you have an event and it triggers a thought, a feeling, and then a behavior. We've got acceptance and commitment therapy, which is known as ACT. And that sort of fits sort of under the umbrella of CBT, but it's more of a values-based practice. And it includes a lot of mindfulness and not trying to necessarily get rid of feelings, but just notice them and move through them. DBT is dialectal behavioral therapy, which I don't know a whole lot about because it's not something I'm trained in. EMDR is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which has been, I guess, an emerging evidence base for in terms of managing and dealing with trauma and negative life experiences. Play therapy is really great for kids. That's uh, how kids communicate is through play. And then art therapy, pretty self-explanatory. It's using a lot of art to use that as a way to work through trauma or even as a way to engage people who maybe don't have the right words. And then family therapy is where the client, for lack of a better word, is the system, is the family, and it's trying to help people navigate different family challenges or trying to maybe adjust the roles that they play. So people uh, find family therapy really helpful in moments of large change like 
maybe a family member moving out or a death or loss or grief or family separation. So helping the family reorganize themselves and kind of harness their existing strengths. And yeah, I guess the dream is to my for my job not to exist. So I'm always trying to get people to the point where perhaps they don't need me and they can live these connected, meaningful, fulfilling lives with great mental health. And that might not be the case. Just like physical health will always have stuff come up. Yeah, I guess that's the that's the big dream. <laughs> yeah, I know that is the big dream. When I worked at World Vision, we were like, it would be so good if there was no poverty. Oh, and uh, it feels like it felt like a big dream at that point too. I think uh, for those listening and who those who have listened to Tea with the Queen for a while, we had Caroline Burrows on many many seasons ago now um, I know you uh, keep connected with Caroline she's an EMDR specialist and she does some some cool stuff so if anyone's listening to this going uh, tell me a bit more about EMDR go back a couple of seasons I think she's on season one but I also know that you and her connect fairly regularly around just being business buddies accountability buddies it's really cool to have uh, that connection of therapists that isn't competitive right absolutely and I I think, I mean, part of the vibe that you give is that, you know, spirit of generosity, but also I have to really keep reminding myself, who's this for? And it's for my clients or for the community. And we will do better work if we all work together. So if we can share resources that make someone feel more organized, they'll do better work in the therapy space. They'll do better work when they're on that therapist couch. So for me, it's for good health means we have to work together like it's not you don't want it to be like you know I guess hot topic politics we want that kind of bipartisan we just want everyone on board we have the same goals of having our clients our service users have good mental health have positive experiences and not take it personally if someone thinks look you're just not the right fit for us actually we encourage them to have that accountability uh, or for us to be accountable and for them to have that confidence to say I don't know if this is working because the sad thing is if someone has a bad experience, they might not come back for a number of years. Yeah, totally. You lose them from the system versus you just lose them from your kind of network. Yeah, so as a system, we try as much as I can with people that I meet and that are in my my network. And it's not just a physical location. It's people that, you know, I connect with all over Australia. As a system, we can work together to improve the mental health of our community. Yeah, I think it's so important that you find a a therapist that you feel can help you. And I also think even, you know, I think about coaching, you've got to find a coach that works for you, right? There's so many coaches out there and you've got to decide who's going to work, how you're going to trust them, how you're going to get the best results, et cetera, et cetera. Similar thing with therapy, I think. Tell me how important is humour for our well-being? (laughs) Well, I think it's really important because it means also you're having people around you. So, I mean, rarely will you sit there making yourself laugh for ages, which, you know, that might be, <laughs> that might be really Imagine. helpful. I know, just having a chuckle to yourself. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, you know, that's part of connection, right, is having good people around you. And I always think to some of the darkest moments of my life, you know, think of funerals. When you're telling stories, you're laughing, you're remembering that person, you know, the fun things they did or the silly things they did. Like, you know, I remember at my grandpa's funeral, you know, we would tell jokes of like the kinds of notes he would write for on his shopping list and he would write them in like half Greek, half English, but with Greek letters and you'd be trying to decipher the, and just, you know, it brings you connection. Like it's not to, 
it's not dismissing of the grief or those difficult moments, but it's, you know, I think humor can actually be a really a leveler. It can kind of be cathartic. If it's done, you know, selectively, like you don't want to try and make someone laugh if they're, they're really coming to you with a struggle because that can be quite dismissive and they don't feel validated. But who doesn't like humour? You know, it, it can really lighten the mood and be really uh, can diffuse difficult situations sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I think just going back to our discussion about finding a therapist, some people might balk at, at going to a therapist for the first time. Like you said, they may have sat there for 15 years thinking I should do it, I should do it and just haven't done it. What should they think about when approaching a therapist? If you were going to give some tips on, okay, this person has decided to find a therapist, what would you say? How would you find that person? Look, I think there's a number of things to consider and it's a really confusing system. So just it's like if someone said to you, you need to get your physical health sorted, just go figure it out. And you're like, well, what does that mean? Do I go to a doctor, a dentist, an optometrist, a podiatrist, an osteo, physio, a chiro? Like, we have that many modalities within therapy. So we have short-term, long-term, different professions, um, you know, mental health social workers, mental health occupational therapists, mental health nurses, psychologists, clinical psychologists, Whoa. you know, neuropsychologists, organisational, play therapy. Like we have so much. And then within that they specialise in different areas. But I think the first thing would be to, to realise that it's not, it doesn't mean something's wrong. It can be as a way to grow and to expand yourself and to have some realistic expectations. Like I think one of the the difficult things is someone's like, I kept saying, kept saying go to therapy and I went and I had a few sessions and it didn't work. And that's hard. You know, it's like going to a personal trainer twice a fortnight apart and thinking, well, I'm not fit yet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it can take work. On both sides, right? Yeah, it, you know, consistency, commitment. You know, sometimes you have to work hard to be vulnerable and open. You know, and there's a few things you can do within it to enhance your, I guess, your experience. So finding the right vibe is a really big part of that. So if you find someone, if you feel like they're too judgy or maybe they just don't get your experience or, you know, I work a lot with um, LGBTQI young people. So for them, finding someone who's an ally or is at least proficient in what the terminology means, that's hugely important. Some people want practitioners who are from the same background as them or they might be a person of colour and that might be really important. So doing some of that research, it's really hard because we don't, we're not allowed to advertise testimonials and we really discourage reviews because it's supposed to be a confidential service. So that might be really hard. But asking people who they've been to, if your doctor recommends anyone, and there's a few different ways to kind of approach it, but it's first maybe the first step is realizing there's nothing wrong with getting a little bit of extra support yeah and I wonder whether people who have been considering therapy for a while and have just started on whether they will reach out and ask people who do they know because of course they've worked through that whole stigma themselves on therapy but what I'm hearing you say is and I know that there's a lot of time spent on websites and profiles and bios so that you can kind of give some kind of sense when you're doing the research when you can click on someone's website and find out a little bit more about them and I suppose that's one way that you can have a look and see is this therapist using the right language come from the same background all that kind of stuff yes and also some amazing therapists are not great business owners yeah, so they, you know, we have an industry where a lot of people work for themselves 
and don't have a social media presence. Have a really old, daggy DIY website with outdated links, a really grainy selfie that they took as a photo. So don't let that deter you because some of those therapists are incredible therapists and that's all they want to do. They don't want to focus on anything else. And so you might overlook some of them as well. So don't let that deter you. So how do you do that? If if that's the case and there's there's someone who is a great therapist but perhaps they haven't got an updated website or whatever, how do you check out their vibe? Sometimes it's actually just meeting them, you know, or I found, you know, personally when I've looked for my own therapist, sometimes word of mouth. So if I call someone whose website I might like, and they say, look, we're at capacity. I'm like, well, do you recommend other people who work in a similar way to you? And then they will know people often through their own personal or professional networks and might say, actually, yeah, these are three people that practice this same technical modality or here are some of my colleagues who've recently come back from maternity leave or increased their hours. So sometimes that word of mouth, and we do that for our practice, we have a list of people in the area who see presenting issues or concerns or clients who maybe we're not the best fit for and we can sort of say here's um, a few other people that we work closely with you can give them a go so even just a few minutes on the phone can start off with a little bit of a vibe yeah cool cool I know you work with a lot of teenage kids I'd love you to share with our audience someone who's got teenage kids and they're worried about their kids anxiety or depression and how do you suggest that parents talk to them about that? I think this is a really tricky one because at that age, adolescents are primed to feel criticised, so they're more sensitive to what might feel like criticism. And so that might then get parents feeling rejected or frustrated, I'm only just trying to help, and you see these sorts of patterns. So it's taking it really slow, maybe not being so general and saying why are you or how are you feeling and why are you feeling that way? It can actually be, you know, specific. You look a bit sad today. I'm wondering if something happened at school. Or, you know, being really, if you know a bit about their routine and what's happening, it's like you seem a bit quiet. I wonder if maybe you're anxious about your presentation tomorrow. So trying to actually give them the language because one of the things that drives them bonkers when they come and see me is mum keeps saying or dad keeps asking me what's wrong and I don't know. Oh. They often don't have, they don't know why or they haven't. They're not learned. ready to articulate. They can't articulate it yet. Yeah. Or they yeah. feel it in their body. They might feel the butterflies or the tension or they might have trouble sleeping or feel fidgety and not have associated that to anxiety, for example. So I think taking the pressure off and trying to figure out, well, who are you asking it for? Is it to ease your own anxiety as a parent or because you, want them to feel like they can open up and so it's going to take time because that relationship needs to build from the small stuff so if they come to you and say something like oh there's a really cool scooter I want to buy and you're like I don't have time for this hundreds of those little dismissing moments means they won't come to you for the big stuff so you actually need to build the foundations with those little things first you need to invest in that chit chat in that small talk and if you don't feel like you're the best person to have that chat, you know, grab an auntie, uncle, niece, cousin, nephew, someone else who's maybe a slightly older, maybe young adult who can can bridge that gap. And it's okay to upskill. And I'm not the only provider of tuning into teens in Australia. It's an Australian-wide course run online and face-to-face. And same with Mental Health First Aid. They have hundreds of instructors all over Australia who run Youth Mental Health First Aid, which actually gives you those exact tools of what to look out for how to spot it, 
and then once you say, oh, I need to have this conversation, how to actually have that conversation. So it's, um, yeah, it's, there's nothing wrong with getting a bit of extra support because we don't come with a manual when we're born. Um, it's like trying to put IKEA furniture together without instructions. Like we're all, <laughs> we're all different and we might have a part missing and a different piece, you know, and parents can, I've got three kids and they all respond completely differently. And yes. Yeah. That's, that's probably true. And life's busy, right? Life's busy. So you, you sometimes can miss the moments where the small things happen. But what I'm hearing you say is that, as a parent, you need to be a bit more specific. You can't just do what's wrong because maybe they don't know how to articulate that yet. Or maybe you can just have by keeping alert yourself and open and watching their routine, if their routine shifts or something shifts for them, being able to articulate that to them in a non-judgmental way. Yeah, and also maybe shifting, as I work with parents of teenagers, we use the analogy, you know, you're shifting from a manager to a consultant. So that includes a little bit more vulnerability and honesty on your behalf as well. So they will learn from you. So if you come home and say, oh, I was really nervous about this meeting I had today and I I think I handled it well, you're opening up the option of talking about nervousness or anxiety. So what we don't talk about signals to someone, you know, the absence of that conversation, they might interpret as it's not safe to talk about. Yeah, got ya. So you don't want to overload them, like they're not your best friend, they're your kid, but you can start by saying, you know, I had a near miss in the car driving and it really scared me because the first thing I thought was, oh, my goodness, what will happen to blah, blah, blah. You know, actually just sharing a bit more of ourselves, it opens up the space and makes it safer for other people to share back. I was only just talking about the fact that you get fired as someone's manager and then you have to get hired as their consultant last week when you're talking about kids, right? Because, of course, you're the boss to begin with because you're keeping them safe and all that kind of stuff. But at some point you get fired from that role and then you have to get rehired as the consultant. (laughs) Yeah, and that's so deeply wounding for some parents. Like they feel such a deep sense of rejection but it's so common and it's so normal and it's actually really healthy for kids to push away from the parents a little bit. If you heard the swimming pool analogy where, you know, the kids will, a good safe attachment style means they're holding onto the edge of the pool and then they'll go and explore in the deep end and they might swim too far, too fast and kind of tread water and get scared and then run back to the side of the pool and hold on. And in that hold on bit, parents are like, oh, this is great. My kids come back. And then they feel confident, they feel safe, and they kick off the edge of the pool to go back in the deep end. And that can feel like rejection or like what has just happened. One minute they're here and and that can feel really hot and cold, but that's really healthy and normal. I love that analogy. Yeah, yeah, the swimming pool. It's not mine. It's actually another um another therapist, Lisa Demur. She talks about it a lot. But I think it's a really beautiful one to to picture. Yeah, it's good. I mean, I know what your style is like and you are one of the least judgmental people that I know. And I don't think I've even told you that, ever told you that. But anyway, I'm telling, <laughs> I'm telling you that now on the podcast so the rest of the world can hear. But I'm curious what you do when you're not helping others because your work could be all-consuming. Yep. Could be. Look, it definitely can be. And I do struggle to turn off from the topic. So, I mean, I'm in relationships, I'm in friendships, I'm in relationships and I have mental health. So it's hard to switch off from that because I'm always curious to learn more and a lot of the books I read and podcasts I listen to are still on those themes because they're so interesting. I'm really diligent with 
not working on the weekends, like seeing clients unless I have to. And then I make sure that there's room in the week for chill time. I probably outside of lockdown will go on a long weekend every couple of months. Um, I love the outdoors. I do a lot of hiking and camping. And that really forces me to switch off because I often choose places with no internet, no Wi-Fi, my battery or my phone will die. I just came back not long ago from a 13-day hike across um, the Grampians, the Grampians Peaks Trail, and most of that didn't have any reception. So I just got to embrace nature and really switch off. So I think those things are really important. And I talk a lot about it with other professionals in our industry that we need to look after ourselves to prevent burnout, to be good therapists. So if I don't, you know, I might maybe run this marathon for a year or two and then I might want to leave the field altogether, but I want to do this for the next 20, 30 years. So it's a slow, long game and I'll do better work for my clients that way. And I want the person who sees me at the last session for the day to get the same energy as the person who sees me at the start. So I also take a big lunch break. I'll go for a walk. Sometimes I get I have a routine of going to get a chai. Sometimes I don't even feel like it, but it's part of my ritual and it helps me center myself. So it's it's all those small things that need to be consistent throughout my week and just part of my lifestyle. Yeah, I'm so glad that you talk about consistency and daily daily self-care because I think people go I run a business therefore I'm too busy I'll have four holidays a year and that will do it but that doesn't do it that doesn't mean that we're resilient it just means that we're focused on the next whatever the next holiday is and I think you're right I think it's important to rock up for the person that you have at the start of the day and have the same energy level that you do for the person at the end of the day I love working with you. I think you're amazing. I think the work that you do is amazing. Some of the stories that you've shared has been just beautiful. And I can see how teenagers who have you as their therapist feel really safe and careful in your care. And um, I just want to say thank you because you and the therapy hub and all that you do is so necessary. Thank you. I was trying to find a really bad joke to make around that's why they love me, but nothing came to mind. (laughs) So you can think of it later and laugh on your own and see if humour really helps. (laughs) All right, we'll do that. (laughs) Thank you, Marie. (laughs) No worries. That's it for this episode of Tea with the Queen. If you want to contact me directly, all my details are at my website, emmamcqueen.com.au. I look forward to your company next episode. I'm Emma McQueen. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Thank you for coming. 